Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Unbossed Podcast. This month, October, is going to be all about imposter syndrome. And to further research this topic, I interviewed the author, innovator, leader, facilitator, communicator, and mentor, Lauren Volbert. She is actually uh, just wrote a book uh, called Imposter, this mental distorties you tell yourself and overcome imposter syndrome. We're going to be talking about the book and about her life. Let's tune in. Okay. Hi, Lauren. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, we're going to talk about imposter syndrome. My favorite subject. <laughs> Love it. Tell us, um, what is imposter syndrome? <clears throat> Imposter syndrome is what I would describe as a kind of a set of symptoms, and you may individually have more or less of some symptoms, but it is things like having an excessive fear of failure, having an excessive fear of judgment, saying to yourself a lot, I can't do that, I can't try new things, um, feeling too afraid to take risks, put yourself out there. Worrying a lot about what other people think of you, uh, really worrying about other people's judgments, um, and that kind of thing is what I would describe as a set of symptoms that belong to imposter syndrome. And you can have it really badly, or you can have it temporarily, or at certain in certain situations. But that's you know that's what I consider imposter syndrome. Nice. And where does imposter is this some, is this is this something new? Uh, is imposter syndrome something new or is this a new word that we are now identifying? Uh, I think it's a new phrase for a very old thing. I think uh, imposter syndrome as a concept has been around for a long time. Um, I think it's become worse in a way because of social media. Social media has kind of made it worse because the effect of seeing other people's curated external lives constantly on Instagram, on Facebook, where their lives look perfect and my life looks terrible, I think has really increased that feeling. Um, it also in business, uh, with LinkedIn, with TEDx, you know, with all of these platforms of people being awesome all the time. Awesome. <laughs> and you're thinking I'm not awesome or I'm not awesome all the time like that person. So that really inflames that feeling of not being good enough, being less than mm-hmm. have having limiting beliefs about your own ability. Whereas in, in, all honesty, probably the vast majority of people who are on those social media platforms doing those things have an equal amount of self-doubt. They just aren't putting it on social media. Um, Although I have seen a change in that in the last few years. I think one of the things the pandemic has done is actually made people more comfortable with being vulnerable about their own limiting beliefs on social media. I hope that that's going to continue as a trend. Um, but anyway, in general, people curate the best of themselves on social media. And those of us who are sitting there looking at, you know, scrolling are going, Oh my God, my life is not nearly <laughs> as pretty and beautiful. And, you know, so that's, I think has made it more worse. Yeah. Do you think everybody has a little bit of imposter? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I, in my book, I actually mention a few people who a lot of people hold up as like the, you know, the perfect 
like, oh, wow, they must have no problems in their life. Bella Hadid, very famous model and actress. I think she's an actress. Uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, there are, uh, Billie Eilish in a recent interview, you know, said, I feel imposter syndrome all the time. So I think honestly, um, we, the idea when you are doing something in your, especially in your profession. So the two areas in which I think people really feel imposter syndrome are, uh, in your profession and also parenthood. Uh, really getting into motherhood, especially sounds like a real trigger for imposter syndrome because it is a thing you're supposed to know how to do. Mm. And so a lot of people, um, men and women, but especially women, I think because of the pressure, uh, get into the situation or like, I have no idea what I'm doing and I feel like a complete <laughs> imposter yeah. and oh my God. But it also really happens at work where you are being paid, you're being paid to be an expert. And so the minute you hit a new situation, that you've never done before, your brain says, your brain gives you fear. And when you get fear response, mm. your brain is automatically trained to move you out of the fear. Yeah. So it says, I can't do that. I can't do that. Get out of this. Don't do this. And so it is giving you triggers of the fight or flight response, which sounds very logical of like, oh, I'm just going to mess this up. I shouldn't take this opportunity. I can't really do this because I've never done it before. Yeah. Um, in the original draft of my book, actually, I started with a quote from Richard Branson, uh, which was my favorite, one of my favorite quotes, where he said, if someone asks you to do something you've never done before, say yes and figure it out later. Yeah. And I love that quote. Yeah. This is what I really try to live my whole life doing because um, you never know how to do something until you do it. Yeah until you actually try it. And the vast majority of times, I don't suggest you jump out of a plane without knowing how to do it. But in the vast majority of cases, it's not going to kill you if you fail. Yeah. So try it. But our brains are there to save us to because everything feels life or death yeah. when you're afraid. And so it's going to say, don't try that. Don't take that opportunity. Don't, you know, don't accept that assignment. Don't move in that direction. Don't move countries. Don't, you know, so all the things that are risky, yeah. your brain will give you a very logical sounding reason why you shouldn't do it. Nice. Um, would you tell us uh, the title of your book and um, what, maybe a brief summary from you the, as the author, like what does it mean to you to have written this piece of work? Yes. Uh, so the book is called Imposter, actually. Um, and it is a, it's really designed to help people understand two key things. One is having these feelings that I associate with imposter syndrome, the fear of failure, the fear of being judged, the, the fear of trying new things. It is not your fault. Mm. What accompanies the fear of trying new things a lot of time is shame. Mm -hmm. I can't Oh God, I'm too scared. I'm, you know, I'm letting myself down. I really wanted to try that new thing and I'm too scared to do it. And now I'm a jerk. You know, I'm such an asshole because I can't try these. So that makes it worse. It's a shame spiral. It goes yeah. down and down and down. And so what I really wanted to do with this book is say, first of all, not your fault. You have been conditioned by both socialization as well as what your brain is telling you to resist risk, resist yeah. change resist situations in which you could be judged. Mm. That is, that's very normal. 
to feel like that. And then the second piece of it is, is you can retrain your brain. You can always retrain your brain. You can always create a new neural pathway that says, I am capable of this. I just haven't tried it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is really what I wanted to get across with this book because I have been working with a lot of people in my work, which I'm a coach and a trainer. And I see a whole lot of people, especially women, but not only women, saying, I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> We were just talking about it. Why? Why can't you do it? What's the story there? You know, and sometimes they can't even articulate like why they can't do it. Oh, I've just never been good at it. Who told you? Yes. Where did you figure, where did you get this information that you're no good at it? Yeah, yeah. And what does it matter if you're no good at it, if you're not trying to do it as like a profession? Mm. You know, I think an area, for example, I can give you a really random area is I'm not good at sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see a lot of people, you know, I, I can't, I can't do any of those because I'm not good at sports. Who cares? Are you trying to be a professional <laughs> athlete? Are you trying to get paid to be a pro- No, you're not. So if you're not, who cares? Who cares yeah. if you, you know, try something and you're not very good at it? It is, that's your own internal judgment. Yeah. And so it is totally possible to retrain your brain. And so for me, um, I really just got so, it made me sad. It made me sad to hear how much people limited themselves. I do have feelings of imposter syndrome of my own. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm saying I'm beyond it, but I picked up and moved countries. I have changed careers. I have done a lot of things basically because why the hell not? Yeah. Why the hell not? I mean, I don't, I don't really have the bit of my brain that says, oh God, don't do that. probably to my detriment, but you know, I, I, I don't, I just don't have it. I'm just like, Oh, I'm going to try it. Nice. If I don't like it, I don't have to keep doing it, but why not try? So that's what I was trying to communicate in this book. I was trying to, I want to give the gift of why not try? Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Just try. And, and the thing that we can, we can train our brain to do, and it's a fact, this has been proven is we can train our brain to build a neural pathway from I can't to I can, and I enjoy it. We will get to overcoming imposter syndrome in a few minutes. I wanted to talk about, um, you know, in your book, you specifically say that, and uh, I'm going to misquote you, but I'm going to do my best to try to represent what you were saying. But you were saying that there are specific subpopulations that feel imposter syndrome more than others. Yes. Uh, that you have noticed in your research and in your experience coaching women and minorities, I believe. Yes. Um, do what, what white men have imposter syndrome? Yeah. And, and, and we, I don't want to belittle the, you know, the fact that anybody can have it. Of course. Anybody can have it. But what I see is it's worse with certain populations and it's more prevalent in certain populations. So in general, um, cishet white men have it less bad. And that's a massive generalization, but that is, it is a fact. They, they have been raised and socialized to believe that what they're doing is generally good and generally right Mm -hmm. and generally, you know, correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so the rest of us have 
not received that uh, benefit. So Mm -hmm. the rest of us are struggling with people telling us you can't do that or you're not good at that or um, all of those things. You look like you shouldn't be there. You look like you should be other things. Yes, literally judging you on what you should be. And I think the, you know, the easy example, the the, the very straightforward example that that has had a lot of research recently is women in STEM, Mm. Uh, women trying to break into scientific or technical uh, industries. And still, still to this day, women are being told well, you don't have you don't have the brain for it. You aren't suited for that. Um, you're distract. You are distracting in the lab. <laughs> Gets me. It makes me angry. Um, it's it is so infuriating that women are simply thought of by men in STEM uh, as not having the brain capacity uh, as men. Yeah, in science, and, and, it, and it's it, li- which is literally scientifically not true. They themselves are scientists, scientists, but would believe a ridiculous thing like that. And to that to that point, it's almost subconscious, yeah. right? It's not logical, yes. right? Um, and these populations are affected the most. Uh, how, how do we deal with that concept? Going back to imposter syndrome and uh, the inability to allow yourself to fail. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we, how do we, how do we got here in some ways? Is that part of like the, I I don't know what it is. Right. Um, It is, part of it is not great news because I think it is baked into our society. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not to say we can't change because we have changed because societally we have changed. Yeah. You know, we are not publicly executing people anymore. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, I mean, that may sound like a really dramatic example, but it is an important thing to remember. We have, as a as a species, as a population of people, gone in the direction. I, I should take that back. There are still public executions, but you know, fortunately, not in Europe and yeah. not in North America. Um, we are moving. It seems like we are moving as a people in a general direction of being more social, yeah, and more capable of being empathetic and living in a society. So being actually aware of each other. Um, I will give you the more recent example than executions, the more recent example of me too. Me too is a fundamental example of how we can change. We can change awareness Mm -hmm. in a population of people over a very short period of time. So it can change. doesn't mean the problem is fixed because it isn't. But it does mean that there is so much more space for public dialogue about this issue than there ever has been before. I mean, the, it, it is a, it's a decade, you know, it's been a decade, basically. And it, the, the, the change in the level of communication around this is quite astonishing. So I believe that our concept of, of society having this embedded patriarchy in it can and is somewhat changing. Mm. Um, people are talking about it, which which is how it gets better. Yeah, sunlight dis- disinfects. That's the famous line. The more that we talk about it, even if there's backlash, even if we you know go back and forth, that means that things can be changed. Nice. So so the but it's slow. Yeah, um, there is kind of a 
uh, trend right now to say imposter syndrome isn't a thing, it's society that's the problem. Part of that is true. The society is the problem, but there is imposter syndrome. And what we have done, those of us who feel it, is we've internalized a societal um, message mm. and a societal expectation on us. We need to debug ourselves. We need to get that out of ourselves before we can challenge this society. Mm -hmm. If we are coming from a position of really kind of believing you know, in the, in that thing, it doesn't, we don't, we're not coming from a position of strength. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what my, what I'm trying to do with my book is not say the burden is all on you and you know, that it's your problem. It is until you get it out, get it out of yourself, you will not have the strength of conviction to help society change. And a huge part, thanks to uh, your work as well, is to, like you said, put it in words and having language around imposter syndrome. Very much so. Specifically. Right. Because then we can talk about it, we can get it out of it. Um, and like we were saying, it's like it's easier when you have language around it because then you can communicate with others, which is how we, you know, live in a society. Right. Exactly <laughs> that. Yeah, exactly that. And, um, you know, so several of the things that have been communicated around imposter syndrome are things that I very much want to challenge. The thing, a lot of people, men and women, try to talk about it like it's a woman's issue. It isn't. Yeah. And that is a very important point. When it's a women's issue, of course, it's not going to get solved because it's yeah. a women's issue. <laughs> and who cares about that? Um, it, is an, it is a many people issue. Yeah. It is especially an issue amongst, as I mentioned, and as we mentioned before, minorities, minorities. Um, Neurodiverse people have a lot of issues with this. People in the queer community have a lot of challenge with this because they're being told they are less than. They are not good. They are, you know, bad. Even if it's even if they didn't grow up in religious communities, it's not overt. They still have internalized a feeling of being less than. And so, it is much bigger than a women's issue, yeah. and it's also unfortunately it is a thing that starts in childhood i say unfortunately because being a parent is a very difficult thing yeah um already and i think um it, what i'm not trying to do is say parents are always to blame and it's the parents fault and but there are things that parents can be doing that are going to help your children better be be better set up for success in this in this way and the extreme focus on academic success, like at the pinnacle of academic success, not just be good at what you're good at, but you need to be the best at everything. Mm. That insistence, that is, oh, whew, that is, that could be a whole book in and of itself. Um, children who were academically successful and then just basically flopped when they left school because there was nobody grading them. There was nobody giving them like, you have an A now, you have an A. And they don't know how to live because they're not being graded. Well, that's part of, I think, where corporate comes in, right? That. That. And that's where academics grades is replaced by corporate performance reviews. Right. But the problem is that it is, you cannot test for corporate fitness, if you know what I mean. <laughs> there is no... Um, 
objective value of corporate fitness. And so what you have is when you when you go into performance reviews frequently, you have this very amorphous, well, you're not performing very well. <laughs> or you need to improve on what to do what, <laughs> you know. And it, it is it is it is very challenging to be in a corporate situation and have a performance review that you cannot act on, that you can't, it's not, it's not an objective measurement. There's no way to objectively measurement, measure it. You can say, these are your sales numbers and you didn't make them. That's nice and objective. But in a lot of cases, any um, jobs that are not numbers based, it becomes extremely subjective, which can really trigger. And therefore emotional. Yeah. Very much the imposter syndrome. Yeah. I'm going to go out, I'm going to say something controversial, which I also say in my book, which is some companies are just fine with it triggering your imposter syndrome and that, um, that emotional response, because you working against a unattainable, very amorphous idea of perfection for them, they have no problem with that because you tend to, you'll, you'll tend to work longer hours. You'll tend to, you know, overachieve, you'll you'll push harder against a, an amorphous subjective definition of what you're supposed to be doing, your, comp- corp- your corporate fitness. Mm. And they are fine with that because in general, when they give you vague targets and uh, you are just chasing after vague targets, you are going to perform better than if they gave you very concrete but very achievable targets. Mm. I feel that. So I think a lot of people do, and I think it is particularly a a thing that is done in America, but it's not exclusive. It's not exclusively a U.S. thing. Um, Plenty of international companies do it. And that's kind of like the, I don't don't want to get too much into a different subject, but that's kind of like the quiet quitting trend. 150%. How is quiet quitting related to? Yes. So I'm glad you brought it up because it's been on my mind. I am... I, the the very fact that the corporate narrative is they're controlling the narrative to the point where they're calling it quiet quitting when it's just fucking doing your job as written <laughs> is outrageous. It's yeah. outrageous. It is insane to me that we even have a culture in which doing your job as written is considered to be negative. It's considered to be quitting. Mm. And it is a thing where, again, don't want to run on a different subject, but um, the, the destruction of the unions over the la- latter half of the 20th, 20th century was is fundamentally partially responsible for this mm-hmm. because um, unions were created in the beginning of the 20th century to stop behavior like this, stop people from being overworked, being asked to do more than they physically can, um, these were reasons that was reasons why unions and labor laws were put in, in the first place. And then, you know, Reagan <laughs> and labor laws got reduced and, you know, it was, it's just been, it's been chaos. So this whole concept of you, you know, you have a 40 hour uh, a week contract, but we're going to expect you to work 80 hours is a thing that's a, only about 50 years old mm. and it is outrageous and should be destroyed. Absolutely. And so 
I, I refuse to use the, the expression quiet quitting and I call it doing your job as written. Yeah. I love how um, young people though have woke their work on this. Love it. I love, yeah. I love it. I love the fact that, you know, basically younger generation. I, I, I feel like I'm young too, but you, know, you are young, but not as young as, but no, they're super aware of this. Yes. And they're like, yes, I am quiet. Call it whatever you want. But the thing is, is that the stakes. Okay. So there's part of, I think where we can go back to this is like, mm -hmm. there's part of claiming back and working on that imposter syndrome when you confront your employer about just, I'm just doing my job. Right. I honestly think that a lot of the stuff that is, that the, that millennials and Gen Z have been able to do is because there is a prevailing feeling of we, you know, the human race is on its way out and anything else doesn't matter. Mm. None of this matters. None of this really matters as much as we were told by the previous generation that it does. Mm. You can't, you can't say, I mean, imagine, you know, imagine being a 25 year old and the people saying, well, you want to look forward to your retirement. What retirement? Will the planet be here? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, it, it, it has no value. Yeah. And so I'm a Gen X and the boomers were telling us when we were coming up in school, you know, you have to get your retirement sorted out. And we, we, you know, we were like, oh, okay, that sounds okay. And even in our, you know, just in our career lifetime, uh, that has completely like, who cares? Yes. Who cares? You know, my retirement plan is the heat death of the planet. I mean, who, you know, who cares about this? So I think that's partially or the majority of the reason why you can't, you can't scare millennials into doing these insane things anymore. Yeah. And good for them. Good yeah. for you. That is fantastic. It should not happen anymore. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. And so I would love to say it's less imposter syndrome. I don't think it is. I think it's bigger fish to fry. I think it's a bigger issue that's on their minds. Honestly, yeah. I think it just doesn't seem that important. Yeah. It, it, it's not as important to impress your employer when you don't know if the planet's going to be here yeah. in 20, 30 years. Yeah. Or if you, if you're even going to have that job right. for more, that, for more, or than, if that industry is going to be there or if that, you know, the rate of change is, is, has sped up so much that it is entirely possible that the job you have won't exist as a job, as a concept anymore. But there's also high trust organizations out sure. there. And what role do they play with imposter syndromes in employees? Right. Um, I feel like it should, it's, it's fairly obvious what value high trust organizations can provide for people with imposter syndrome. But it is very important because people still fall into that mindset of management by fear and management by, you know, control. And this is the battle you're seeing right now with people, more and more people working at home and everything in that managers needing to trust people and all that stuff. It is, it's fact-based that uh, high-trust organizations, organizations that really have as a policy that they trust their employees to work and get results no matter what hours they work, where they work, all of that stuff, perform better, period. And employees are generally have, um, they're more diverse and they perform better. If you, so this gets into the whole um, thing of 
the more that you are micromanaged, the more the person learns doubt about themselves. This goes back to parenting children as well. The more that you check on someone constantly, constantly, where are you? What are you doing? What are you? It, it teaches them to have self-doubt. It teaches them to stay dependent on you mm-hmm. to, to move forward, to make decisions, to make choices. And that is a thing that, that toxic organizations like because they like to have that command and control situation. High trust organizations allow people to make their own decisions, um, perform the tasks that they need to perform, and also make mistakes. Mm. Making mistakes, I know it sounds very, very trendy to say, but making mistakes is the only way we learn. Mm-hmm. Our brains are such that if we do everything right all the time, we don't we don't tend to learn anything new. And so making a mistake or trying something and then having it not go perfectly is is the way we learn. So if you control your employees and don't let them make decisions, they will stay uh, childlike. They will stay under your control. They will stay being afraid to make decisions. And that is what also um, feeds the ego of the manager, though. 100%. Because if you stay childlike, you need your manager more. There's a trend that talks about the, you know, the death of middle management. Right. As part of the... 100%. This concept, right? Because if people are trusted to do the work that they need to do, then you don't need anybody putting pressure on on people to do their work. And focus, and this is where focus on results becomes extremely important. You should not care in most cases, there are cases like, I don't know, flying a plane, for example, where you have to care about the way the person does it. Yes. Um, but in, in the vast majority of cases, you should focus on results. What are the results? Are they getting the results that we need? Um, and that is the way to get away from this micromanagement. Um, something you said really triggered me and now I can't remember what it was. How about the creates, like feeds the ego of the manager? Yes. So the, the, the death of middle management is because um, middle management itself is there to self-perpetuate. It is not to move up because it's a, it's a pyramid and only a few people will move up. It is to make itself indispensable. It is to make itself indispensable. This is extremely important to understand because the idea is not, it should be, it should be to help people who are, who you're managing to move up. They don't want you to, to move up because then they'll be out of a job because they're not good enough or, or they don't have the ambition enough to be in the top. So it's really to keep people down so that you stay in your position. And with the rate that skills are having to change, automatically, if you are in a position for more than five years, you have skilled out. And so if you do not um, allow yourself to learn new skills, try new things, do are doing new things, you have skilled out. Mm-hmm. So you have skilled out people who are very um, envious of younger people 
who want to keep them down. Yeah. That's what a lot of the middle management is. It's, it's self-perpetuating. It feeds itself and it keeps people from growing. That is, that's, that is the endemic problem, especially I will say of European corporate corporates. I like that. It resonates with me a lot because of, um, a uh, some of my generation growing up in corporate, um, we are the ones who started moving jobs every few years. Um, and we always were told yep. that is a negative thing. You're right. doing it wrong. Right. It's because you're not good enough. The, 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 all this right. stuff. Um, when in reality, I think what you said is most true. It is, we are recognizing we are not getting, uh, we're not learning new things. We are keep, people are trying to keep us in our places. Yep. And we're trying to just make moves to better ourselves and right. and move up and find something that we like. And right. That's correct. And that's also, uh, I mean, you know, I think millennials really have, you know, nailed this. But Gen X started it as well because we were the ones who were like, well, that corporate structure sucks. Yeah. So we're going to start a new company. We're going to start up. You know, yes. we're going to, that's, it's also where you see the startup culture coming from nice. is because there was no innovation in corporates yeah. or very little. And so, you know, innovation came from this rigid, rigid uh, yeah. middle management being like, we can't, we can't try new things. Why would we try new things when we can, <laughs> when we can sell the old thing? Hello. <laughs> you know, so it is, that is a, a middle, in, the rigid, rigidity of middle management is exactly where innovation, you know, that goes to die. Yeah. Well, that's where innovation <laughs> goes to die, but that's why innovation culture started with startups and everything, because there was no there was no growth. There was no way to grow yourself or your idea within corporates or very little. Nice. Um, I would like to talk about practically and specifically, how do I know I am suffering from imposter syndrome if I am not aware of, of it? Right. Good one. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. so this is where it is very, very good to practice active listening on yourself and other people. And this is also where um, we cannot do it by ourselves. We also need to help each other listen for this language. So the language is very, very clear. The language is um, apologizing, over-apologizing, mm. over-apologizing. So many people, especially women, over-apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Who was hurt from that? Nobody was hurt. There was nobody who was injured at, from you interrupting. But we do it automatically. Yeah. Um, anytime you say, I can't do that. Yeah. Prove it. How, how, how do you know you can't do that? Mm-hmm. I'm no good at that. How do you know? Where's the evidence? Mm-hmm. Have you tried it recently? Are mm-hmm. you trying to do it as a profession? If not, who cares? So starting to listen to your own language, it will tell you a huge amount about how you are reinforcing. So this gets into neuro-linguistic programming. You are actually reinforcing limiting beliefs Mm. by saying, I can't, I don't know how to, I'm too afraid to, all this stuff. You shouldn't police yourself, use the language, but become aware of it. And then you, then you choose, then you have a moment of choice. Do I want to continue in that? So if you say, um, I can't write a book to use a very specific example. (laughs) That I told you about. (laughs) Um, I would like to know what evidence you have that you can't. Yeah. And what have you done to overcome the, uh, the belief that you cannot? 
Mm. Um, if you've tried, you know, if you've literally sat down and you tried and you just can't, you know, some people just can't write a book. Maybe you can't, but I want proof. If you say to me, I can't write a book, I want proof. Yeah. I want you to have tried and tried and tried. And even if you try and try and try to write a book, and then you end up with a few great pieces for LinkedIn or, you know what I mean? Like you're not going to fail, they're going to fail there by trying. Yeah. So this, it, it is very much in how we speak to ourselves and how we speak to others. Mm. It's very, very clear. The other big thing that I hear people do, and this is all people, not just, you know, both men, women, all genders. Um, oh, what an idiot I am. How stupid was I to do that? Self-blame, self-blame, self-insult. And the, I used to be extremely guilty of this. And then my brother had his first daughter and she, she looked a lot like me as a child. And so what I, I learned this from a therapist, she said, what would it be like to say that to Emma, my niece? Mm. What would it be like to say what you just said to looking her right in the face and say, what a stupid idiot you are. Mm. And that changed, that started to change my mindset about why is it okay for me to talk to myself about that mm. in that way? It isn't. So now when I catch myself doing that, I try to, to phrase it in a way of like, what am I trying to do with that language? What I'm trying to do is get myself to stop making that mistake. Okay, great. Articulate it like that. I'll give you an example. Oh, I forgot my keys. Oh, I'm such a stupid idiot. I would really like to remember my keys next time. So what can I do to make it different? Mm. So that's changing the language from I'm a stupid idiot who did something in the past, which I can't change anyway, to what behavior can I reinforce in the future to make sure I don't do that again? Mm. Yeah. So this is the kind of language and the kind of attitude that we use when we have imposter syndrome, when we are programming ourselves to stay in the same mindset. And so the, the biggest thing that you can do is to start listening to yourself. Mm. Also listening to other people. I, I, I listen to my friends and I say, nope, not going to allow that. Nope. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear that from you. What I'm hearing is this. And I don't want you to say that to yourself. Yeah. Is there any physical evidence of it? Do people, uh, do you know if, yes. yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, um, It is difficult to say definitively. I am not one of those people who's like, um, absolutely, you can stop having all physical pain if you just, but a whole lot of physical pain is caused from stress. Mm. And you put yourself under additional increased stress when you are too afraid in every situation, when you overstress about people's feelings about you, about what people are going to think. What are, what are people going to think when I, that puts stress on your body, that puts pressure on your body. So physical pain is caused by stress. Mm -hmm. You can have physical pain because of stress, especially headaches, backaches, stomach problems. All of these things are very common mm -hmm. for people who experience a high level of stress. So the physical stuff is difficult. It's always difficult to say that definitively is stress caused, 
But I can guarantee you that if you are putting yourself under that stress of worrying tremendously about failing, about the future, about what people think of you, whatever, you're causing yourself physical harm. Yeah. And so it is also a very important thing to start thinking about when I feel like this, when I feel this feeling of fear, of worry, of regret, of envy, we haven't even talked about envy, um, I feel it in my stomach. Mm. I get a stomach pain. That's why when I work with my clients, I always ask them when they say, oh, I felt I really was upset about that thing that happened. What do you, where did you feel it? Because we all have tendency to feel things in certain parts of mm -hmm. our body. Yeah. So um, some people, really interestingly enough, when they get very stressed or upset is they wring their hands and, you know, I will see them start to wring their hands when they're talking about it. You know, that is because that's where you hold your stress. Mm -hmm. So become aware of where you hold your stress. Yeah. Because what you can do is when you start to do this, when you're thinking, oh, God, I really have to get that project. I have that deadline. and Let it go and breathe out. Yeah. And when you do that, that's, I call that a conscious counteracting action. Mm -hmm. When you do that, it actually tells your brain that there is no, there's no life or death situation mm -hmm. and you can relax your body just doing that. Right. So it is a really, it's also a really good thing to become aware of where, when stress happens to you, where do you feel it? Mm -hmm. When fear happens to you, where do you feel it? When worry happens to you, where do you feel it? It also ramifies it as you get older. So even if you're young and you're like, ah, it's no problem. Believe me when I tell you, <laughs> it only gets worse as you get older. So it's better to identify it and to be able to have some ways to relax it now yeah. in your 20s or in your 30s than it is in your 50s. Because by the time you get to your 50s, <laughs> it just, it all takes longer. It all takes longer and it's more painful. Mm. I think the last thing we can talk about is how do we overcome imposter syndrome? And one of my favorite things that you have in the book is you have throughout each chapter, as you tell, um, as you move through the book, it's like you have a lot of exercises that people can do in order to, like you said, release some of the stress or identify an imposter syndrome or coping with it. Um, what are some of your favorites, maybe your... Uh, most popular, I would say, mm -hmm. uh, ways in which people can um, cope with imposter syndrome and right. or heal from imposter syndrome. Right. If there's such a thing as healing from it. For sure, for sure. And it, it, it's actually the really good news is the majority of kind of the symptoms of imposter syndrome are curable or overcomable. Um, it is there's only some things which are kind of embedded in you if you learned it early enough from childhood, but a lot of stuff can change. Um, I think the, the thing that I'd like to I repeat a lot as an exercise and it is, it really feels very embarrassing, but it is extremely powerful is to ask one of your fans, a person who really likes you to tell you, five to 10 things that they really love about you. Mm. And that feels weird. It's goofy, 
but it is really, really great. And then they have to tell it to you. You have to like hear it from them. Receive it. And receive it. And not say, not deflect, not say, oh, but, oh, but you're, you're better. You're nice. Not deflect, not push it away. Hear it. And when that person has said it, you say, thank you. There is a lot in there about hearing from other people and also repeating for yourself the things that are great about yourself. Mm. It is a way, again, of using NLP, of neuro-linguistic programming, to reprogram your brain away from only focusing on your negatives, only focusing on things that may not even be actually negative about you, but that are stories, old stories that have been told to you. Mm. And so really listening to somebody tell you how great you are and not having the ability to push away and just receive it. Mm. It's very, very powerful. My favorite exercise in the whole book, uh, and every time I read it, even though I've read it now like a hundred times, um, <laughs> is writing a love letter to yourself. Mm. I like that one a lot. Yeah, and I think it's extraordinarily powerful. And it is something that... Um, really can dramatically affect your self-love and self-belief. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so writing a love letter to yourself every week, updating it with new awesome things about yourself <laughs> that you've seen yourself do in the week, um, using colored pens, drawing pictures, you know, all really being creative around that love letter, I mm-hmm. think can be an extremely powerful thing. And it is extremely hard for a person with imposter syndrome to start doing. Mm. And therefore, the hardest thing to do where the challenge is, where you feel the most resistance, that is the, that's the place of the most work, the most opportunity to work and to change. Beautiful. Mm. Thank you so much. there you have it i hope you like this episode and please don't forget to share like comment on the podcast link tell all your nachos and friends and family about it submit a recommendation for guests at subscribe on your favorite podcast app donate by clicking on the anchor link and help me continue to make great episodes you can find all this information on www.emboss.io see you next time Oh, that was good.